Good morning, friends and family. Welcome to Convergent Church. I forget that there's a bumper video every week. I'm sorry. There's just too much to keep in my head. So we're just going to skip the bumper video today. How's that sound? And we'll edit that out of the sermon later. Anyways, good morning. It is good to be with you. I'm excited to be here. It's wonderful to sing with you all. Um, if you're joining us this morning, we're continuing in our uh, series of uh, Summer in the Psalms, where we basically take um, thoughts that are on our pastor's hearts and things that we would want to um, present to our congregation in the Psalms. Today, we're going to be in Psalm 32, if you'd like to open your Bible and turn there. In Christmas of 1772... One of the most famous, if not the most famous song was ever written. It was called Faith's Review and Expectation. It was written by a coarse man. He was a sailor by trade who, when writing about himself, said this. He said, I have the sinful ambition of Caesar himself. This man was a drunkard. He was an atheist who tried all he could to convince his fellows that God did not exist, let alone love the world and forgive sins. This man, when spoken about by others, was titled the Great Blasphemer. He was not only a sailor by trade, but he was a slaver by trade. This man was involved in the transatlantic slaving trade. This man would kidnap and steal African men, women, and children and participate in the many atrocities of the African slave trade. And throughout his career as a slaver, he would captain three different ships, all slaving ships, all dooming innocent people to lives of servitude and degradation and humiliation, torture and death. The author of the song was a man by the name of John Newton, and his song began like this. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Faith's review and expectation would eventually be dubbed Amazing Grace after its opening line. But how did John Newton, a sailor whose debauchery and depravity offended even other sailors around him, go from slaver to sanctified? Well, I'll answer that question for you today, I promise, but until then... Let's focus on this question that I believe King David can answer for us in Psalm 32. It's this, what should I do when I sin? What should I do when I sin? Let's read Psalm 32 verses 1 and 2. It says this, Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Here is our first point. Christians are completely forgiven. 
In these first two verses, David shows us that Christians, those who are in Christ, who have placed their faith in Jesus, are completely forgiven from their sins. And he does so by explaining the concept of sin in three different ways. And the first of those is just a a general overview of the word sin. He says, blessed is the man whose sin is covered. To think of sin is to think of an arrow that has failed to hit its intended target. It's a falling short or not living up to a perfect standard. Paul succinctly summed up his thoughts on sin by saying, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God in Romans 3.23. Sin is any mark of unholiness that may stain a Christian's heart or mind or soul or body and cause us to fall from God's perfect standard from, for us. So first we have sin. Next, David goes a bit deeper. He doesn't stop at this sort of general idea of sin, but he wants us to grasp the totality of this concept and this true forgiveness that we have in Jesus. And so he begins to talk about the sin of transgression, saying, blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven. It's a further explanation of kinds of sins that we may commit, and it's mostly illustrated by the crossing of a line. A transgression is when God says, do not, and yet we do anyway. Or God says, do, and we fail to do so. It is willful disobedience. It looks like stealing a cookie from the cookie jar. It looks like lying on a resume, which I am very guilty of. It looks like hating your neighbor or disregarding the poor. It looks like showing partiality towards or discrimination against people of a certain color or a certain kind of person. It could be watching a video that you know will cause you to sin. For me, it looks like a husband who fails to live understandably and sacrificially towards my wife. For, for wives, it could look like deliberately disrespecting your husband. For children, it looks like disobeying your parents, even though God calls you to love and honor them and respect them. It's being told to respect and value human life and, like John Newton, refusing to do so. It's crossing a line that God has drawn in his word. But David is not done there. David wants to reveal to us one deeper explanation of sin, one deeper level of sin. It's the sin of iniquity. He says, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. And iniquity is perhaps the most deplorable kind of sin. It's a continued sin without repentance. The other day, um, we were doing devotions in our house, and Xavier was in his room, and he was reading the book of Ephesians. And then when he was done, he came down to me, and he said, Dad... What does coil us mean? I said, coil us. I looked at the text and I said, do you mean callous? He said, yes, callous, Dad. What does callous mean? And I told him, I said, Xavier, look at my hands. I said, you feel these hard spots in my hands? I said, that is a callous. And I said, son, a callous on the hands is a good thing. It's a good sign of the character of a man. I said, but a callous on the heart is a thing to be feared. And iniquity is just that. It is continued sin that flows from a callous heart, a heart hardened towards God, a heart so 
scoured by sin, that it is unfeeling like a callous. And the Bible often illustrates the sin of iniquity as a cup of sin that was long ago full of sin and is now running over. The cup is running over onto the floor and over the sides. It's so full of sin. It illustrates it as a, as a person who is thirsty for more sin with no end of it in sight and who refuses to repent. And friends, iniquity is where God found John Newton. Iniquity is where God found me. And ultimately, iniquity is where God finds all of us, hardened sinners with no end of our sin in sight. But if that was the end of our story, we would not be sitting in church today, would we? If that was the end of our reality, we would not be singing songs like, your name is higher, your name is greater, all my hope is in you. We would not be singing about the great chasm that was the reality between us and God and how God bridged that gap for us. Here's the good news, my friends. God can completely forgive every wrongdoing, no matter the severity or intention. God can forgive even the worst kinds of sin. It doesn't matter if we meant to sin or we stumbled into sin. It doesn't matter if it was by accident or completely purposeful. It doesn't matter if I sinned one time or 10,000 times. It doesn't matter if my sin was relatively small or the greatest and most deplorable thing you could Think of God can and does forgive some of the most depraved people. Even captains of slave ships who doomed thousands to death. And the most beautiful thing about this psalm is that God can forgive them so completely as to not count a single sin, a single transgression, or a single iniquity against them. And how can he do this? He can do this because of his son, Jesus. His sinless son who came to earth and, and who lived a sinless life. Unlike me, who, who never missed the mark who never fell short of God's glory, who never crossed the lines of God's word. He had no callousness on his heart like me. He never transgressed, and his cup was not even a single drop of iniquity. Jesus loved sacrificially. He obeyed perfectly, and he died obediently on a cross for men like John Newton and for men like me and for many men and women just like you. And he's told us that whoever anchors our faith in his sacrifice for our sins, we can rejoice with David and say, blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. I just got to ask you a question. Are you happy that your sins are forgiven? Are you happy about that? That should cause us to rejoice. And I'll be completely transparent. I don't rejoice in God's forgiveness enough. I don't. We can say I am happy because the eternal consequences of what I've done are removed from me and I have a new and abundant life in Jesus because of Jesus. I am a blessed man. 
and yet I am a fallen man. And I am aware, I'm willing to bet that even though many of us trust that truth, that we are forgiven, that the gospel is not new news to us, and we trust that we will continually be forgiven in Christ, many of us often struggle to feel the reality of being completely forgiven in our lives, do we not? We may believe it or trust it with our mind, but to to really feel it is something that is often fleeting for many of us. Many of us fear to approach God when we sin and fear facing the full picture of the sins we've committed and at times continue to commit. And if this is you, I I just want to tell you that you are not alone. Not by a long shot. Listen to what King David says as he continues. He says in verse 3, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Here's our second point. Christians are free to confess completely. You see, a particular sin was eating up King David in this text. David had gone out on his roof one night, and he looked out and he surveyed his kingdom, and he saw a woman bathing. Her name was Bathsheba. And even though King David had hundreds and hundreds of wives and hundreds of concubines, David decided that he also wanted Bathsheba. And so he sent his men, he called her to his palace, he slept with her, she became pregnant, but the problem was that Bathsheba was a married woman, and David was facing the reality of his sins. What would happen if the truth of what I've done came out? I'm the king, kings can't do this, what will they do to me if they find out? The sins I've committed. And so David hatched a devious plan. He found out who Bathsheba's husband was. He was a soldier in David's army. He was a good and faithful soldier, a faithful man, a righteous man by all accounts. And David told his generals, he said, place this man at the front lines of the battle. Place him where the fighting is the fiercest and where the backup is the thinnest and where he will most surely perish and die he did. And so David murdered the husband of Bathsheba. His sin was willful, it was deliberate, it was calculated, it was selfish, it was cruel, and yet God forgave him. But before he did so, he brought an intense misery to David's life. And I'm just wondering, has anybody ever felt how David felt? He says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. They're my groaning all day long. Your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Have you ever sinned against God and maybe you're feeling this guilt and this shame that comes along with the sin? It may feel like you're you're hiding a, a secret inside as if your soul is sort of groaning for freedom. It's, it's wrenching against the, the chains of fear and disgrace. It may feel like something inside of you is, is dying or, or perhaps churning inside of your 
soul. I have been here many times. And David tells us what the cause of this is. He says it's the Lord's discipline. It's the heaviness of God's hand. This turmoil in the life of a Christian can be some so great at times that it, it might feel like a kind of spiritual depression. You may struggle to sleep. You may struggle to eat. You may struggle to even get up and face the day. So heavy is the burden that you're bearing. And yet many of us, if we're honest, we carry this burden in silence and in secrecy. Is this you, my brother? Is this you, my sister? It has been me. But I have good news. In Christ, there is a remedy for this. Look what David said he did about this crushing weight and inner turmoil he was feeling. In verse 5, he says, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and what you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And just as David shows us this sort of progressive three levels of sin, he now shows us these three steps that we can take in order to embrace complete forgiveness. He says, the first thing I did is I acknowledged my sin to God. And it seems like common sense to us, but how often do we struggle with this? David stopped turning a blind eye to what he had done. He stopped pretending that it hadn't happened. He admitted that something was wrong. He, he chose to look the problem in the face. He said, I'm done denying it. Everything is not okay. Holding this inside is killing me. I'm going to acknowledge God. Yes, I have sinned against you. And this is step one, simply moving from denial of sin to acceptance that says, yes, even though I may be saved, God has covered my sin, even though I am forgiven, I still sin against God, and I must acknowledge that. David then says, he said, I didn't cover my iniquity like I had been doing. He said, I covered up what I did with Bathsheba, I covered up what I did to her husband, but I won't cover it up anymore. He says, he says, you know, I'm done hiding this. And so often we can be tempted once we acknowledge that there is a problem and sort of begin to uncover the reality of that. When we see the extent of the problem, we cover it back up again. I was watching a documentary about agriculture, because I'm a nerd. The subject turned to avocados, which grow in Central America. Now, if you're wondering why your avocados are getting progressively expensive, uh, I have an answer for you. So avocado trees suffer from a particularly pervasive fungus that has been damaging and devastating the avocado industry for over a decade now. And to prevent the spread of this fungus, the farmers would cut down the afflicted trees, they would grind out the stumps, and they would fill the hole. But they found that when they used this method, all the other trees in the field would eventually contract the fungus. No matter how many trees they cut down and how many stumps they grinded out and how many holes they filled, the field would eventually die. Cutting down the tree and filling the hole did not stop the spread. And they said the only way to ensure the fungus was eliminated 
was to cut down the tree, grind out the stump, and dig out every single root. The whole tree, root and all. They said, or the other option was to burn your entire field. And try as they might, they could simply not cover up the problem. How often is this me? How often is this us? Once we acknowledge our sin, we must resist the temptation to cover it back up again. It's like perhaps you're buying a house, and you buy the house, and you're having it expected, and you pull away a panel, and you see that there's tons of mold back there. What's your first inclination? We'll just put that right back up there, all right? I don't want to see that. I don't want to deal with that. That's what I often do. But the reality is that this only allows the sin that is in us to grow stronger as we grow progressively weaker, as David explained. It causes us again to be eaten up by the affliction and grow more and more callous to our sin. It's as if we come to the precipice of freedom and we're seeing the reality of complete forgiveness, and we're desiring it, and instead we decide that we would rather walk back into slavery. My friends, do not do this. I beg that you would go all the way. Lastly, David says, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. David faced the truth of what was happening. He gave it a true name. You know, an essential part of complete confession is the journey to find the root of our sins and to expose them. And we cannot expose our sins until we know what they truly are. And we know how God sees these things. We find out what God calls the things we're doing or thinking or experiencing and accept God's definition for them. I was at work the other day and I heard an interesting definition. So I was sitting with a group of students at the youth center and I heard one girl say, I'm going free shopping tonight. And I was like overhearing it. And so I kind of turned and I said, oh, hey, like, is your mom taking you on like a shopping spree? Like, is this going to be something like, like you're getting a gift? And it, the room got eerily quiet because they found out that an adult was listening to them, first of all. And she turned at me and looked at me like I had three heads. And she spoke very slowly and she said, Mr. Jameson, free shopping. And it clicked, just like when Chelsea slows things down for me, I begin to understand. No, I understand what she was saying. She was saying, I'm going shoplifting later. I'm going to go steal. I'm going to take things and not pay for them. And the thing was, instead of acknowledging this is stealing, this is shoplifting, this is wrong, what did she do? She changed the definition. And so often when I go to confess my sins to God, I mumble over and I say, well, you know, God, I did it again and I, I feel really bad and, I, I'm, you know, could you please forgive me? And I, I don't go all the way to confess the reality of what I've done. You know, if, if, if we cheat on our spouse, it's adultery. If we take what does not belong to us, it's theft. If we want what our neighbor has, whether it's his wife or his house or his car or his titles, it's envy. 
If we fail to tell the truth, it's, it's, it's not stretching the truth. It's transgressing God's law. It is lying. And when we confess our sins, if we want to feel the reality of that complete forgiveness, we simply must call a spade a spade. John Newton did not procure property. He was not an enterprising entrepreneur. He was a slave leader. He was a human trafficker. That's what he was. And yet even this sin, this is a sin I'm sure the likes of many of us have never committed. Even this sin that is beyond our imagination, it seems somewhat unfathomable to many of us, God forgave. My friends, facing the extent of our sin is never pleasant but it is ultimately healing. In 1788, John Newton would write of his involvement in the slave trade in a series of letters titled Confessions. Newton would write about all he had done, and he would call for the abolishment of the transatlantic slave trade. And on the other side of coming to know the complete forgiveness that was his in Christ, that he truly was forgiven for every act of sin that he had ever committed or would commit, he was able to write in great detail about the truth of what he'd done so that people could see the reality of what was happening. And God would use those letters, those confessions, to eventually outlaw slavery in Europe. He would use John Newton's testimony so that others would not experience the same kind of travesties that he had committed And ultimately, John Newton would write how he finally felt the weight of that sin fall off of his shoulders when he faced the realities of what he'd done. So if this is you, if you're secretly bearing something inside, I just want to ask, why secretly bear a sin that Jesus died and paid for? Why bear a weight that He died and rose from the grave to liberate you from. Why hold on to that when Jesus is saying, give that to me. I paid for that. I died for that. That's not yours to carry anymore. I forgive you completely. I hold nothing against you. My Father loves you, and because of what I've done for you, He sees you in my righteousness. There is no spot or stain or blemish on you anymore, Christian. So why hide? John tells us in 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That means a complete cleaning. That means a complete cleansing from head to toe and not only the outside of us, but the inward parts of our hearts. Jesus comes and he forgives and he cleans us once again. I pray that you would let God's promise of complete forgiveness in Christ enable you to confess your sins completely to God and to not hold that weight anymore. Let's see what David writes in verses 6 and 7. He says, therefore, 
Let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. And this is our last point. Christians are completely preserved in Christ. Do you notice the change in David? Do you notice the feelings of security and preservation and safety and being surrounded by God's grace and God's mercy on the other side of his confession? No longer is he saying, my bones are being eaten up. No longer is he saying, your hand is heavy upon me, Lord. He's saying, you are my hiding place, God. You are my refuge. Now, God saved John Newton on what was perhaps the worst night of his life. As Newton was captaining his ship, the Greyhound, it ran into a devastating storm. For 11 days and 11 nights, wind and rain and waves battered the Greyhound. On the first night, the Greyhound began to take on water. And for 10 more days, John Newton, along with his crew, worked tirelessly day and night to bail out the water from the ship. Could you imagine that? 11 straight days of bailing water. When John Newton was simply too exhausted to bail anymore, his crew took him and they lashed his hands to the helm of the ship so that he could try to keep the ship steady in the storm. And with his hands lashed at the helm, facing the imminent specter of death, John Newton surveyed his life and he realized that if he died today, he would not be forgiven by God. He realized that his soul was as mangled and battered and as crushed as the ship that he was captaining. And his thoughts turned to stories that his mother had told him as a child that turned to Proverbs 1. And John would write that it was as if God was speaking this verse directly to him in that storm. It says this. It says, if you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you, but because I have called you and you have refused to listen, you've stretched out my hand and no one has heeded because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you, when terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then you will call upon me, but I will not answer You will seek me diligently, but you will not find me. As John Newton surveyed that verse in his mind, his his mind began to turn to the things that he knew about Christ, and, and a verse came into his mind. It was Luke 11, 13, and it says this, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? And with His hands... Lashed to the helm, John Newton cried out and he said, God, preserve my life. I don't want to die like this. And God in his mercy, he reached down and and where John Newton's callous heart once was, he, he plucked it out and he gave him a new and soft heart. 
a heart that was now sensitive to what God was doing in his life and sensitive to what God had been trying to say to him all along. And he granted through the power of the Holy Spirit, John Newton, this desire to repent. And the Lord in his faithfulness saved even the most wretched of us. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, he wrote, that saved a wretch like me, he said. He forgave John Newton that day of all he'd done and he redeemed him from all he had been. And on that night, tossed about on that ship, fearing death, and at the gate of death's door, John Newton was reborn. And while many other men lost their lives over the course of those 11 days, amazingly, John Newton did not. David writes, Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. And though by all intents and purposes, John Newton should have perished, God protected John. He saved him. And I just want to ask you, Christian, will he not do the same for you? Will he not forgive you, whom he loves and cherishes, whom he died for, whom he purchased? It's so interesting to me that it seems as though on the cusp of salvation, when we're still living a worldly life and God calls us, we are so ready when he opens our hearts to run to him and say, Lord, yes, forgive me, save me. I want to be filled with your love. But then on the other side of salvation, we go, God must hate me now because I continue to sin. Nothing could be further from the truth. Do you understand that when you are in the trials of sin, it is precisely when Jesus is drawing closest to you Jesus is not afraid of your sin. He conquered your sin. So if you're stuck in the trial of sin, if you're in the storm, as John Newton was, I pray that you would no longer run, that you would cry out to God knowing that he is merciful, he is loving, he is compassionate, and he will save. That no matter how badly the storm is raging, around you or within you, that God can be found. And so I pray, call upon God through Christ to deliver you from the trials of sin you're in, and he will send the Holy Spirit to preserve you from calamity. He surely will. You know, we can be so tempted to try and work out our trials of sin. We can be so tempted to sort of bail away the problem, as John Newton was doing. When God is saying all the while, no, child, hide in me. I will preserve you. I will protect you. I will bring you out of the storm and I will bring you into a brighter tomorrow. I will surround you with shouts of deliverance. I am your refuge, nothing and no one else. And so what should we do when we sin? It seems simple enough. We should trust God, confess our sin completely, and cry out for God's deliverance. Because we know that God has forgiven us completely, that we can completely confess every sin and trust Christ to completely preserve our lives. I promise you, God will not forsake you. God will not banish you out of his home. God will not be reluctant to meet you, but if you cry out to him, 
He will be faithful to answer and to hear you. He will honor your confession, and he will once again allow forgiveness and peace to flood your life. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. And God, we thank you. Lord, if you could save a man like John Newton, you can save anyone. And Lord, if you can forgive those kinds of sins, Lord, we know that you can forgive any kinds of sin. Lord, help us to trust the reality of what Jesus has done. Lord, even as we sing these songs that are coming up, Lord, that our hearts would meditate on the truth of what you've done, that we would realize that we are completely forgiven in you. But along with that, Lord, give us hearts that would desire to keep short accounts with you. Lord, that we would not be afraid to run, with you, run to you when we sin, but instead we would say, this is the place where I can hide, that God is my refuge, that because of Christ, his wrath is no longer on me, but instead I'm surrounded by the shouts of deliverance of grace and mercy. And Lord, I pray very specifically that you would send your Holy Spirit, Lord, to anybody who's struggling, who anybody who's stuck in a trial of sin, that they would see that there is a way out and that avenue is Jesus. Lord, that you would convict them, Lord, so that you may comfort them. Lord, we love you and bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.